God sovereignly dictates missionaries, radio broadcasts, pamphlets, books, whatever it takes all around the world to get the gospel to those hearts who are open. And so God desires men to come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires all men to be saved. God's not content just with our salvation. He is interested in the salvation of the lost. And so you can't say, well, God's my Savior. I'm going to heaven. My name's in the Lamb's book of life. Let the rest hang. No. God desires all men to be forgiven. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 1. Over the last two days, Pastor Carl has addressed the astonishment of the multitudes and the assessment of the Master. And today he will conclude as we learn about the announcement of the mystery. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now please note, not some, but all. In fact, when he comes to verse 6 of that chapter, he will say that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. God desires all men to be saved because Jesus Christ died for all men. And of course, there are those who have an explanation for this verse and all the verses like it. Now, I wish I had time to dissect every single verse that they look at. But I have a whole course on the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, where I look at all of the verses that the Calvinist and the Arminian uses, and we look very carefully at each one. So some who are motivated might want to go back and get some of those messages. But they would immediately come back and say, listen, you say God wants all men to be saved. That God doesn't want any people to be lost. Well, how is it that some people are lost? I mean, if God wants all men to be saved and people are lost and go to hell, does that mean that God is not sovereign? And so the hyper-Calvinist has an explanation. One, when Paul says in this chapter that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, all doesn't mean all in their theology. All doesn't mean all men, all people. A Calvinist, when he says, for God so loved the world, he doesn't mean the world meaning everybody. He means the world of the elect. He believes in what's called a limited atonement, a particular atonement, that Jesus Christ did not shed his blood for all men, but a select few. And that's why... Some of my Calvinist friends cannot look at the guy they meet on the street and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. Because they don't know that in their thinking. They can't say that until that person comes to faith. But I want to tell you, all men mean all men here, just as it does for God so loved the world. Some of these people are educated beyond their own intelligence. They've come up with some explanations that I think that are very foolish. And what they fail to do is to distinguish between God's moral will 
and God's determinative will. God's determinative will are those things that God determines or dictates are going to happen in spite of man. For instance, God created the world. He flooded it with water at one point. There's coming a time when he's going to burn the whole world with fire and he's going to speak a new heaven and a new earth into existence and it has absolutely nothing to do with any of us. Because God is a sovereign God has revealed that that is what he has determined to do. But God's moral will, on the other hand, is not always done. For instance, it is God's moral will that you should not commit murder. But every single day, murders take place. That doesn't mean that God is frustrated, that God is any less sovereign, that man can choose to commit murder. It simply means that God in his sovereignty has given man a free will to choose so that he would not be a robot or machine, but like himself made in his own image. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 50, Forever does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. The clear implication is that some choose not to do the will of the Father. And of course, while man is free to choose, he is not free to escape the consequences of that choice. But what I want you to see is God does not run over your free will like a bulldozer. Nor does God ravish anyone's human will with what some call irresistible grace. That God's will cannot be resisted. That is so far from the truth. Please understand, God is sovereign, but he does not smush your free will. Now, in saying that, that God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. We are not teaching the doctrine of universalism. You know what universalism is. It's held by groups like the Unity and Unitarian Universalists and a lot of liberal Protestants today. And it basically says in the end, we're all going to be saved. Well, Jesus, of course, said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to hell, to destruction. Many are those who enter by it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. He taught, in the end, there's a whole lot more going down than there is going up. In the parable of the sower, in three out of four soils, people rejected him. So the scripture does not teach universalism, that all men will be saved. But neither does it teach that God's will is frustrated when he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This word desires, thelo in the original, speaks of what God delights in, what God wants. And God says that he delights in the salvation of men, but notice it is dependent on their coming to a knowledge of the truth. And of course, not everyone has heard the gospel, so not everyone is a believer. And some people will never hear the gospel. Some people will never hear the plan of salvation, and God will justly condemn them to hell because they did not hear for the simple reason that God practices that which he preaches. God told me as a pastor in the Sermon on the Mount that when I meet someone who has such utter contempt for the things of God, for holy things, I am to withhold the gospel pearl lest it be trampled in the mud by the swine. 
Even so, the Lord God has given a measure of, of revelation to all men through the creation around from the conscience within. And some men suppress that revelation, professing to be wise. The Bible says they become fools and God withholds any more truth. So men need to come to a knowledge of the truth. That does not minimize my responsibility as a Christian or the role of the body of Christ. God sovereignly dictates missionaries, radio broadcasts, pamphlets, books, whatever it takes all around the world to get the gospel to those hearts who are open. And so God desires men to come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires all men to be saved. God's not content just with our salvation. He is interested in the salvation of the lost. And so you can't say, well, God's my savior. I'm going to heaven. My name's in the Lamb's book of life. Let the rest hang. No. God desires all men to be forgiven. Now, I take a moment to comment on 1 Timothy because there's an explanation to each of these verses. Jot down this one. 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Calvinist says that's right. God wants all to come to repentance, but they cannot come to repentance unless God first draws them. And that is certainly true. Jesus himself will say it here in verse 44 in this discourse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we need to ask, does God, through the Holy Spirit, give all men the same chance? We'll write down this verse, John 12, 32. We'll study it later. Jesus said, and I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He's speaking prophetically. He's going to be lifted up to the earth. He's going to be lifted on a cross, risen from the dead, not because he wants people lost, but because he wants people saved. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. So the drawing of God is not on a select few. It is on all men, but men must respond. They must come to him as God begins to draw them. Write down this verse, John 16, 8. He's speaking prophetically about the coming work of the Spirit from that perspective at that time. And he says, he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The world means world. It means everybody. But you see, the problem is not God's sovereignty. The problem is man's will. We studied that problem a few weeks ago. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He does not say unable, but unwilling. Oh, but some people say. When God, the Holy Spirit, works in a person's life, they cannot resist the grace of God. It is irresistible grace. That is so far from the truth. You can resist God's work. Stephen is preaching to the Jewish people of his day. He is preaching that Christ is Lord. And they begin to get angry at him. They gnash their teeth at him. And he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, Talk about that kind of preaching today. It doesn't win friend and influence people. You are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and ears always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just like your fathers did. 
What were they doing? They said no to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear that God never overrides man's free will. He works in all, but not all are saved. I think of the Lord Jesus as he was up there in the Mount of Olives. And he's coming to that time just before his crucifixion, understanding the rejection of the nation of Israel. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Again, not unable, but unwilling. I love what Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy. He said to him, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things. Why? For the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul got into trouble for preaching the gospel. And so we need to ask Paul a question. Paul, why did you suffer? Why were you beaten? Why did you pray? Why did you fast? Why were you stoned? Why were you pickled in the Mediterranean? And I can hear Paul say, for the sake of the chosen, electos is the word, for the sake of the elect. Well, who are the elect, Paul? The elect are the whosoever wills, and the not elect are the whosoever wants. Hey, listen, if that were not true, you could just say, Paul, take it easy. Relax. Don't work so hard. Don't pray so hard. Don't come under such great persecution. Just go fishing. Take a long vacation. After all, all the elect are going to get saved anyway. But Paul does not have that perspective. And he'd say, well, I'm not worried about it. I'm just carrying out the responsibility that God has given me. So as he tells those elders in, the, in Ephesus that there be no blood on my hands. You see that word chosen here in verse 10? Again, it's the word electos. From it, we get our word chosen or elect. Please understand the doctrine of sovereign election is not a Calvinistic doctrine. It is a biblical doctrine. Every Bible-believing Christian who knows his Bible believes in the doctrine of election. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he chose us. There it's the verbal form of election. He elected us in him. How? When? Before the foundation of the world before he created the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Understand, there is a supernatural dimension to our salvation that starts with God. There has to be. In that same epistle, he told the church in chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He told the church at Rome, there is none who seeks for God. Listen, if no one by nature seeks after God because we're all rebels by nature, if spiritually speaking, we have the capacity of a corpse, if that is true, then the initiative must start with Almighty God. And that's exactly what Jesus will say in this discourse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Theologians call that sovereign election. Understand, the Bible is very clear on the doctrine of election. It is not a matter of whether God elects. That's not the issue. 
The issue is how does God elect? Now, Romans 8 teaches that God elects according to his foreknowledge. In fact, in God's providence, that's precisely where we will be this Wednesday night in our study of Romans 8. Paul tells us that those whom God foreknew, uh, foreknowledge, it's used twice in the New Testament, prior knowledge, prognosco, knowledge ahead of time. That's what he's speaking about here, foreknowledge. Now, I'm just commenting here on this verse in John 6. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Every single one that the Father gives will come, and they will not be cast out. Now, understand that the scope of this sermon, again, is not to deal in totality with the doctrine of election. But what I want you to see is that you're as dead as a corpse and God had to take the initiative. Don't ever say in your testimony, well, you know, I started talking to these Christians and I was an atheist or an agnostic or just an unbeliever. And I started reading all the books on apologetics and listening to sermons and reasoning this and reasoning that. And then I decided to become a Christian. That is one of the most self-centered, arrogant testimonies I've ever heard. It didn't start with you. The reason you would even have a care about some book in apologetics is because it started with God. From beginning to end, God began to sovereignly work in a man's heart. Jesus will say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Bible closes with an invitation three times to come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. God does not invite people to make uh, a decision that is impossible for them to make. No, God is giving a real bona fide invitation to the people of this world. And so whatever conclusions you come to on the sovereignty of God, please understand that God never sets up some arbitrary, impossible, unobtainable terms for people to come to Christ. No, God gives you a free will and he will not crush it. And God's elective choice is based on his prior knowledge, his foreknowledge. What does that mean? It means in eternity past, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Because God who knows everything could look down the corridors of time See his work, be it general revelation through creation or conscience, be it the wooing work of God the Holy Spirit. He could see his work by his spirit, and he could see how people would respond. And so three times over in the book of Revelation, the Bible says before the foundation of the world, that is before he ever spoke this world into existence, before he ever made man, he wrote the names of every single person who would ever be saved in the Lamb's book of life. You say, that means I didn't have a choice. No, it doesn't. It just means God knows it all. It means that God is an omniscient God. If God didn't know it all, God wouldn't be God. But God knowing it all, so that in eternity past, he can write the names of every person who will ever be saved, it simply means that God's election is based on that. God chose you on the basis of what you would do with the work of the Spirit. And that's really the point here of verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So the Father first gives men and women to the Son, but these men and women must come to him 
by believing him, but having come, they are secure. Please understand, this is a verse that deals with the security of the believer. Would you circle that word all in your Bibles? It means all without exception. All of those who are genuine believers. He's not speaking here of the victorious ones or the virtuous ones, but all the saved ones. Now, notice how strong this promise is for those of you who are doubting this morning, who are thinking that maybe somehow you can get saved and you can lose this salvation. No, this is a secure salvation. Don't ever buy into that doctrine that you can lose your salvation. That is heresy. Now, that may sound unkind. That's the way they viewed Jacob Arminius when he first introduced it in 1568. They thought it to be sheer heresy, and it is. Understand it in light of what he says here. He not only gives us a promise that all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and I will not cast them out. That could have been enough. He could have ended it right there. But now he goes on, and he gives us the explanation of the promise. Look at verse 38. Because or for, here's the reason why. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, you came down to do the will of the Father who sent you. So what precisely is the will of the Father in this matter? Well, he tells me, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Underscore that word all again, and underline that word nothing. He doesn't lose a single person who comes to the Father. Just as none of the fragments of the barley loaves were lost, so none will be lost to the Son of God. They were all gathered up in the resurrection of the righteousness. How do we know? In the righteous. Why? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, without exception, who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life and I myself will raise it up on the last day. That is an irrefutable promise to come to Jesus Christ. He came to earth not to do his will, but the Father's will. What's the Father's will? Every single one, without exception, who looks to the Son, because you first have to behold the Son, you, understanding precedes conversion, you have to know what the gospel is. Whoever beholds the Son and believes in him will be raised up on the last day. How do we know? Because the will of my Father is that everyone without exception will be raised up. So follow this carefully now. If Jesus Christ does not raise up on the last day someone who had come to him in faith, he is disobeying the Father's will. And he said, I didn't come to disobey the Father's will. I came to obey the Father's will. So to say that you can lose your salvation once you are genuinely saved is basically to call Jesus Christ a liar. And I'm not prepared to do that. And not only are you calling him a liar, you are calling him a sinner because now he is not doing the Father's will because the Father's will is set for all without exception who believe that they will be raised up on the last day. And not only you are calling him a liar and a sinner, you are calling him weak because to teach that he cannot hold on to your salvation and secure your salvation is teaching that he is not all the all-powerful God that he claims to be. Now, I don't think, understand that most people who say you can lose your salvation would dare say that Jesus is a liar, weak, or a sinner. 
But if they carefully consider the practical implications of this verse, that in essence by practice is what they are saying. Jesus started with 100 sheep and he's going to end with 100 sheep. You say, well, what about Judas? Well, we'll look at Judas before this sermon is over. He's going to deal with Judas. The problem with Judas is he never came to Christ. In chapter 7, he will call him the son of perdition from the beginning. He chose one of the 12, knowing that from the beginning he was a devil. Judas never lost salvation because Judas never had salvation. It's much like those that John describes who came to the church in his day. He said they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They went out from us because they were not really of us. In other words, there were people who came into the church, they said, I'm born again, I'm saved, but they went out from us. Why did they go out? Because they were not really of us. You see, uh, the Bible teaches if a person is genuinely saved, he will persevere. You're not saved by your perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. They went out so it might be shown that they were not really of us to begin with. You got it? If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. Listen, when you really understand what Christianity is, that it is not a set of do's and don'ts, but a love relationship with God, that you don't hold on to God, but that He holds on to you, when you understand grace, it's not a motivation to license to sin. The grace of God, Paul says, will teach you to deny ungodliness and to live holy, righteously in this present age. It's certainly not a motivation to legalism. It is a motivation to love. God, I want to love you. I want to obey you. That you would receive me, forgive me, and secure me for all of eternity. That's the message of salvation. Now, have you ever... Have you ever come to him and believed in him? that you might be secure by him. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. Whoever, that means you, whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we bless you in this hour that you would be so kind that in the deadness of our sin, deserving nothing but your wrath, that you would rescue us, that you would put signpost after signpost up that we might hear the gospel, understand it, believe, and in faith be saved. I pray today, Father, for someone whom, like this multitude, are thinking that they can work their way to heaven. But today, their eyes have been opened to the gospel, that only Christ, the bread of life, can give them life. Only He can save them, that they cannot save themselves. You said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You said the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and risen again. Friend, he died for all of your sin. And because he paid your debt in full, he can say, whoever will call upon my name will be saved. Would you in simple faith, taking God at his word, because without taking God at his word, which is what faith is, the Bible says it is impossible to please him. Would you in simple faith say, Lord Jesus, save me. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, in faith, Lord Jesus, tell him, save me. Now, Father...
I pray that you drive home the truths that we've studied this morning deep into our hearts, that we might not be lackadaisical, legalistic, or licentious in our actions, but with a deep sense of wanting to obey you because we're pleasing by the blood of Christ. Help us to grow into the fullness that belongs to our Savior, that men might see our good works and glorify you, our Father who's in heaven. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 017. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.